School's out, at least for most of you, right? Not as excited as I thought you would be. Kids, you bummed? You going to miss homework? Kids? You here? No? You guys going to miss homework? No? Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, so, yeah, me neither, to be honest. Um, our oldest kid just finished first grade, and I know it's not that bad. We've got three more to come, and it's only going to get worse. But um, the first year of, like, regular homework every night and uh, adjusting to Common Core um, has been just interesting. But I think um, I, I, at times I've thought, man, this is a lot. Like, why do they have to? Like, why do I send them there all day if you're going to send them home and make me do another hour's worth of work with them? But um, anyway, sorry, that's just my but, – but then I, re- then I remember why – like, then my seven – just when I think that it is possibly too much that they send home so much homework for a seven-year-old, then my seven-year-old reminds me why they have to do that. Because here's what happens almost every time. She buzzes through the easy ones, just the, the first parts of the problem, and then she – hollers, stops, and says, hey, I need help, I need help, I need help. And I get in there, and she just says, well, I need help with this one. I'm like, okay, well, did you read it? Because it's usually a word problem. And she's like, well, no, I, mean, I just need help. And she, what it really boils down to, she wants me to tell her what to do. Right? So when she gets past the point of just learning the principles and like going through the motions and then starts to get to the, like, how it actually applies, and they start to put like an everyday like an application problem of how you would actually solve something in life in there, that's when she stops and is like, oh, I don't want to do this. And I'm like, so that's why homework is important because if, if we don't press them into that stage of learning, then it's just going to be principles that uh, aren't fully uh, grasped and uh, comprehended and really are going to do no good. And so I think most good teachers know that. You've got you to teach the principle. You've got to uh, show them what it is, and then you're going to model it for them, right? You're going to do some with them, but then you've got to have them do it on their own. You've got to put them out there. You've got to let them feel it. You've got to let them figure it out, let them ask their questions. And, and so if, you just, if I just swoop in and tell her what to do, then uh, I'm robbing her of that learning experience. And so I think a lot of good teachers know that, um, and Jesus is a good teacher, okay? And so what Jesus has been doing is he spent over two years with his disciples now, at least with the 12, um, and he's been, show, he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. And he's been telling them what it's like. And he's been modeling it for them, right? He's gone before them. He's taken them with them. And he's healed people. He's proclaimed the truth. He has showed them what the kingdom looks like over and over again. And then he's already once, he sent out the 12. He says, okay, now you guys go, go take a shot at this. Right? We saw that back in Luke 9. And then now he's going to do that with an even larger group. So now he's going to send out 72 here in today's message. And so what we're seeing is Jesus has taught, he has modeled, and now he's going to give a chance to actually put it into practice, do it on their own, uh, get an at-bat, if you will, and not just sit on the sidelines. And we all know this is helpful to just hear about something or to just you know, know knowledge about something but to never get to try it, put our hands on it. it we're not really going to learn that. We can know how to do something. But it, it, for me, this I remember as a kid... Um, trying to fish and uh, learning to tie a knot around a, a fishing line, right? And, and they, would sh- they would tell me how, but then whenever I would mess it up and I would get frustrated, a lot of times my, my dad or whoever was there would just take it from me and do it themselves, right? And so therefore it was like years before I actually learned, I'm like, no, 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 you're going to need to sit here and be frustrated with me for a minute and let me learn how to actually do this. We can't just take it from them. And so Jesus is going to let them be out there and let them be frustrated. And that's kind of where we enter into this story here in Luke chapter 10. And what we see right off the bat is that our God is a sending 
God. Okay, our God is a sending God. After this, in verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them. We know that he's headed to Jerusalem, right? We've, we've heard that in previous uh, passages in Luke, that, that it's kind of his ministry is over in Galilee now, and he's headed toward Jerusalem, which we know is headed toward the cross. Okay, so, so that's the last leg of his earthly ministry. It's going to take him months to get there, but he has set his face like, like stone toward Jerusalem. He knows that's where he's headed. And so he's going to send out um, his disciples to go out in front of him. And so um, what we see in this initial thing is uh, Jesus is sending them out, but he, they're not the first ones to be sent. Okay, our God is a sending God. The message that he sends them out with is what? That the kingdom of God has come near. Right? That the kingdom of God has come near. If you think back to all of Luke, you think back to the early, uh, what we were in in the Advent season of Christmas and and the declarations, the announcement of the, the angels was what? Right? That peace on earth unto you this day a Savior is born. Like the presence, we looked at this at the transfiguration, that a key piece of being God's people had always been God dwelling in their midst. Right? And that is a part of the, the Old Testament story of God's people had God dwelling in their midst, and that's what set them apart. Well, the, God's presence had left the temple back in Ezekiel's day, and then it had, it had been gone for hundreds of years. Right, And then Jesus shows back up, and that Shekinah glory, the presence of God, is once again with his people. Okay, so, so that's what's going on here. The kingdom of God has come near, and that's the message that he sends his people out to proclaim. But that message can't go out unless Jesus himself had been sent. Okay, so the reason Jesus is going to send his people out is because Jesus himself was sent by God. Okay, so our God is a sending God. He sends Jesus to make a way for the kingdom of God to come near. And so the message of the kingdom that he tells them to speak in verse uh, five is what? Peace to this house. That's why we just watched that video, to give you an idea, because I think that, that language is kind of lost on us in our understanding of the word peace. And so if you hear that Jesus told them to go out and just say, hey, peace has come upon this house, that's kind of A, weird, and certainly B, difficult to know what he's saying. But if you think about it in the, in the larger context of what that word shalom meant to the Jewish people, it was about wholeness or completeness, right, that we just saw in the video. And it it was really the declaration that um, what we've been longing for has come to meet us. Okay, so the truth that is universal for all of humanity is that this world, like, it's broken. Okay, so we're born into a world that is broken by sin, and and we, we very early on realize we have this longing for something, Right, this longing for something to fill our hearts. Other people have described it as as a hole in our hearts. Right, something that we're longing, and we think that maybe this will fill it. Maybe this relationship, or this accomplishment, this achievement, this job, this wife, this husband, this car, this house, whatever it may be. And we keep thinking that something. If I just get this next thing, then it'll be filled because we're 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 not complete. Because we're born into sin, and sin has fractured the relationship with the life giver. Right? That, that's what we were made to be, image bearers of God. We were made to be in the presence of God. And when we sin, we separated ourselves from God. And so we are incomplete. And so the message of the gospel is that the kingdom has come near. And with the kingdom has come shalom, completeness, that you can be made whole again. So Jesus sends him out with this message and tells him to go to these houses and say, peace be upon you. 
And, and what they would have understood that to mean is shalom. Like God is restoring things back to the way they are supposed to be. Maybe you can remember back, if you're, if you're a Christian, you can remember the moment whenever you received the good news of Jesus. When you trusted in the gospel, when you trusted in the fact that Jesus had come to make a way for you to be saved and that he had given his life so that you didn't have to give your own and, and he has forgiven you of your sins and he's brought you into relationship with God, many of you can remember the weight that was lifted off your shoulders. A weight that you maybe didn't even know was there, right? Because it's just part of life. That longing, that angst, that, that guilt, that shame, that longing to get something, be something, whatever it may be. And, and if you remember back to that moment, like it was like a weight was lifted off. That was peace entering into your heart and shalom falling on you as you realize that indeed God has made a way and you can rest. It's another theme throughout the, the Old Testament is God is bringing rest to his people. Not just in terms of a day off, but in terms of like, I can breathe deeply and, and rest because God has done the work that I could never do. Jesus said it is finished on the cross because the, the work of salvation is complete. We don't have to earn it. So he's come to bring rest. He's come to bring peace. That is the message of the gospel, the wholeness, the completeness, the security that comes with God's presence is the message of the gospel. But what we find out too in verses 12 and 16 is that eternity is at stake. That as he sends them out with this message that the kingdom has come near and tells them to proclaim peace to each house that they come upon, we realize that what, what he starts to frame up is that they're going to declare peace to some and some it's not going to take, right? He says if, if they receive you, then, then that person, is they, they've, they've been called by God and they're going to receive the message of the gospel and like your peace is going to be passed on to them, and they're going to join you in the kingdom of God. But for others, as the disciples declare this, this peace, this message of the kingdom, it's going to be rejected. And Jesus tells them, okay, when, it, when they reject it, let it come right back to you, and you're going to move on. But then what he's going to say is he's going to pronounce these woes on these unrepentant cities. And so Jesus has been here in the flesh, going from town to town, doing ministry, displaying the glory of God by healing people, raising the dead, uh, preaching with power, doing all kinds of incredible things. And yet there's still town after town that is rejecting him. There's people that, that don't accept him or embrace him as Savior. And Jesus is going to say, listen, it's not going to end well for those people. The kingdom has come near, and the offer is peace. But for those who reject it, the penalty will be hell and eternal damnation. And so we see that in verses 11. It says, even the dust of, of your town, he tells them, to, to, that clings to your feet, wipe it off against them. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom you remember from the Old Testament story in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked cities that God destroyed because of their sin. He, he uh, sent down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed the cities. And so Jesus says, for these people that have been in the presence of Jesus, seen him at work, and are still rejected, rejecting him, it's going to be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it, than it is for them. He goes on to continue this. He says, woe to you, Chorazan and, and Bethsaida, for the mighty works done in you, if they'd have been done in... In these other cities, like he'd list a couple more cities here in Sidon, and he says, if they, if they would have seen what you've seen, if I would have sent Jesus to them, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for them than for you. And, and you, Capernaum, will be exalted to heaven. Will you be exalted to heaven? Capernaum was Peter's hometown where Jesus did a lot of ministry, and yet there was still 
not an embrace of him as Savior. And Jesus says, are you, are you going to be exalted to heaven because you are this town? No, like you're going to be brought down to Hades. And so Jesus wraps it all up and says, the one who hears me and the one the one who hears, hears me. The one who hears you, sorry, hears me. So he's telling his disciples, as you go and you make these proclamations, the one who receives you and your message, they're actually receiving me. They will receive salvation. But the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus is saying he's going to empower his disciples to take the message forward. And what we see in here, we're back to Jesus being a teacher. We know that the, the big picture, the, the big plan for Jesus is not just what he's going to do on earth with his disciples, but as he uh, goes to the cross and he's buried in the grave and then he, he was resurrected, right? And, and that's the, the, the proof that he was who he says he was. But then after that, he's going to meet with his disciples. He's going to spend some time on earth for 40 days, kind of showing himself. But then he's going to leave and he's going to tell his disciples, it's actually better that I go. Because if I'm here, I can only be here in one place. But if I leave, then I can send the helper to you. And so what Jesus has done is made a way for us to have peace with God. And now God can send his presence, not just to dwell in the midst in one place in a temple tent so people can come to God. But God is instead going to send his presence to fall on all of his people. And we see that happen in uh, Luke's uh, sequel to the book of, of Luke, the book of Acts, we see the, the Holy Spirit falls on the people of God and the church is then equipped and empowered by the Spirit to go forward and take the, the message of the gospel to all nations. And so if we think about, we know that's what Jesus is headed toward, right? We, that he's building not just um, a people to gain him some influence while he's on earth, he's building a church. And the church is going to be responsible for taking his message to the ends of the earth. You realize it's through the church, it's through the work of the early church that Jesus set up that you and I have heard the gospel, right? It's through the work of the early church when they sent out guys like Paul and Barnabas and others to go outside of Jerusalem, outside of their little area, and to take the message to other countries. That's how you and I heard. You realize that? I'm grateful for that, amen? And, and the church is still active today as God's primary agent to take the good news to the nations. And so knowing that that's what Jesus is doing, he's giving them a chance then to practice what he's going to ultimately commission them to do with the rest of their life. He's giving them a chance to go out and start proclaiming the good news of the gospel. But he's reminding them that eternity is at stake. That those who reject him, those who reject them and their message are rejecting Jesus, and those who reject Jesus are rejecting God. And it's not going to be good for them on, on judgment day. So God is ascending God. He sent Jesus to make a way for the kingdom, and then he sends us to go and proclaim that that way has been made. So John 20, 21 says, that Jesus says to them, this is post-resurrection, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, peace be with you. There's that word again. This is a theme. This is part of what Jesus has come to accomplish is peace. We don't need to miss that. Jesus says, peace be with you. I've made you whole. I've made you complete. I've given you the presence of God. That's what you long for. You don't need anything else. It's so great, so rich. We've talked about it in the previous weeks that when we see the kingdom of God, when we see Jesus for who he is, we'll realize that as we count the cost, that nothing else is measurable. Nothing else can measure up even close to what the worth of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, you've got that. Okay, and, and you got that because I came to bring you that. And now that you have that, I'm going to send you out. He says, peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. 
this, was the, this is the work that Jesus came to accomplish, to make a way for the kingdom of God, but then to empower his church to take it forward. As Jesus, Jesus says, as God has sent me, I'm sending you. And for a lot of us, if we're honest, this is where we check out. Right? This is where we check out if we're honest. Interestingly, a few weeks ago, we had a missionary uh, come and fill our pulpit and share his story. Missionary from Central Asia in the Middle East. And it was like one of our lowest attendance Sundays in over a year. And listen, I know that, that some of you weren't here for a legitimate re- like that you had you know, other commitments and stuff. But what, I, what I've seen as a rhythm for people is when, when they hear that's going to be the, the message or the topic, they go, oh, well, that's not for me. I'm, I'm gonna, I don't need to go there that day. I don't need, that's not me. I'm not. Because they think that, and what's happened, I think, is ministry has been vocationalized. I don't think that's a word but I just made it up. I'm going to use it, okay? So ministry has been vocationalized, and what I mean by that is, is in, the, in our culture, we've made it the job of the pastor and the staff and the missionary to do the, the work of ministry, to be the ones that proclaim the kingdom of God, the ones that do the work. And so, therefore, it's made the rest of us just kind of consumers, and, and it's put those type of roles up on some varsity level where we, we think that a missionary, somebody that is sent over to the Middle East or somebody that's sent to Africa or something like that, those are like the SEAL team of Christians, right? In a lot of ways, they are. Like, we should admire those suckers. Like, that's amazing. But what, what the Bible makes really clear is that that's not for an elite group of people. He sends all of us. He's going to call some of us to go to those hard places. But he sends all of us. Okay, so there's different seasons where, for, for some of you, it, like, there may come a time where God does send you to the nations. And, and we're going to give more and more attention to that as a church, the call that God has on his people that is the church's responsibility, not, like, not just a, a missionary sending agency, but it's the church's responsibility to send people. Like the, the way that people were sent to us, there's still nations that have never heard the name of Jesus. And it's our responsibility to send them out. And so... Um, Jesus is sending us the way that he's sent his people. But we've we got to remember back to the whole context of, of what's going on here. It, Jesus has told them over and over again that, that what it means to follow Jesus, remember, it's not about bettering our life. Remember we looked at that last week. Like We don't come to Jesus because he can make our, our life and help us fulfill our goals and make our life a little bit better. Right? We don't get to follow Jesus on our own terms. Jesus has made it really clear what it's going to look like to follow him, and now he's sending his people out to actually live that out. So it's going to look different in different seasons, and as your, your discipleship, as your maturity matures, like as that changes, um, your assignment may change. But it's always going to be the same mission, is to make disciples. The Great Commission that we, we always use, go, and, go therefore into all the nations. Like that word, we always think of it as this mission. We have to, we have to go on this trip. We have to leave our location. But really the, 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 the word there is a participle where it means as you go. And so it's not for an elite group of people that God sends to the hard places of the earth. That's going to happen, yes. And we have a responsibility to them. We're going to talk more about in the coming weeks. But really the, the call is to the whole church. And it's as you go. That it's no accident that you work the job you work, go to the school that you go to, that your kids play the sports that they play, that you have the friends that you have, the influence that you do, that you live in the neighborhood that you live in. None of that is an accident. And Jesus says, as you go, as you do those things, make disciples. 
So he sends us out into our context, into our place of influence. And listen, it's not just about Jesus getting glory. You've got to remember, he told us, if we really want to find life, we want to really want to find fulfillment, we have to lay down our own search for glory, right? We have to lay down our glory and instead pursue Jesus' glory. So this is not just like, oh, yeah, God's going to make me give up everything, and if I really get serious about that, he might call me to, to go live in Africa as a missionary or whatever. No, no, he's calling you to life. He's saying that the way that you will find fulfillment is to actually spend your life making much of Jesus. That anything else is going, it's vanity. It's going to leave you empty. It's going to leave you wanting more. And so the invitation is to life. It's to abundant life. But it's counterintuitive. Jesus says, you want to, you want to save your life? You've got to lay it down. You're try, if, if you're trying to save your life by getting things, you're going to find out you lost it and you can't get it back. But if you want to find true joy, then spend your life making much of Jesus. And then... He gives us good news, and he says this, the harvest is plentiful. Verse 2, he sends them out, and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Here at The Journey, we believe in, in the sovereignty of God, meaning that it's ultimately up to God to do the saving. In other words, that he's sovereign over the end result. But we also believe that he chooses, out of his sovereignty, to use us as the means to that salvation. So he's the only one who is able to do the saving of anybody's soul. But he uses the church and his people to take that message forward. And a lot of people would say that, that believing in the sovereignty of God uh, actually doesn't promote being evangelist. That it says, well, if God's going to save who he's going to save, then what, what work do we have to do? But it's actually quite the opposite. What we hear from Jesus here is saying, listen, the harvest is plentiful. Meaning Jesus has already gone before us and, and called the people unto himself, and he's going to use us to be the ones that go and proclaim the way of the kingdom of God. He's already taken care of the harvest. He just chooses to use workers to be the ones who go and claim it. Just think about that idea of a harvest being plentiful. Isn't that different than what we often think about with ministry? If I'm honest, when I think about doing ministry, I don't think about like going and picking this really bountiful harvest. The, the imagery that Jesus gives is that, man, like the tree's limbs are drooping with their fruit and it's ready to be picked. Like that it's not like you got to go and find what, like it's really clear that they're right there and you just go and find that low-hanging fruit. But when I think about ministry a lot of times, it's more like I think about it post-harvest. When I think about ministry and finding someone that God is calling to himself and some, like that's going to be saved, I'm more like out in the field uh, in late fall after they've already gone through with the combine and seen if there's any kernels left, right? Or like the deer that are like scratching at the ground just find, trying to find an acorn. That's what I think about when I think about ministry. Anybody else? Like that it's really hard. I don't know who's out there, Lord. I don't know who you're calling me to. Like if you, if you just send that person, then I'll do it. But what Jesus is saying is the harvest is plentiful. The trees are drooping and dropping their branches because the weight of the fruit is, is, is about to fall off of them and we just need laborers to go out and do that work. He goes on to further unpack this by basically saying that you're, you're looking for that low-hanging fruit and saying, hey, if somebody responds, if they're sensitive to the gospel, then you stay there and invest in them. But if they reject it, they're not interested in the message of the gospel, then you move on. He says, God will handle the results. We're not going to drag somebody along to just say the sinner's prayer when they're kicking and screaming. It's not healthy. We present the good news of the gospel, and we let God do the work of awakening their heart. 
That doesn't mean that, that they won't ever respond. But don't pour into rejection over and over again while there are others out there that are soft-hearted and ready to hear. That doesn't mean that we give up on people. We faithfully share with those that we love that are in our life currently. We keep loving them, serving them, staying in relationship with them. We pray that God does a work in their life. But we don't get so nearsighted on them that we forget about the lost and dying world that's right under our nose. So we think about that, and you're probably thinking about your life and going, I don't know that it is plentiful. Like, most of the people I know are already Christians, and they've already told me they're not interested. And listen, part of what the gospel is going to expose to us is that the kingdom of God is for who? The marginalized, the poor, the sick, the dejected from society. A lot of times we think, well, I don't know anybody. It's like, well, the harvest might not be plentiful, like right inside your little comfort zone. Like right inside your people group of who you know, who, you, like, who looks like you, smells like you, talks like you. Yeah, they might have already heard. They might, but listen, that's a good sign that you need to get out of that comfort zone and meet some other people. Because there is a brokenness right here in Southern Illinois that is really overwhelming. When we allow ourselves to see, the Lord has done this work in me in the last year and a half. He has allowed me to see the brokenness that is right under our nose with the opioid epidemic, with the meth epidemic, with the broken homes and kids being pulled out of their homes and having nowhere to go and having to be transferred upstate because there's not enough foster homes, with, with the, the cycle that that creates of them, them raising their own kids without hope. And, it's a, and that contributes to the, like, it, there's brokenness right under our nose. And the, and the really tragic part, is that I start engaged with our community, and there's people out there that are doing work, and they have organizations that are making ways for us to actually engage that make a difference. In other words, what they're doing, because when you just think about that, that can be overwhelming. You're like, well, I don't like, I mean, you know, I got a drug, like, I don't know, but, but I don't know what difference I could possibly make. But what I found is there's organizations out there that are, that are doing the work of connecting people with people that actually want help. So that changes the equation. Because now we're not just talking about the thousands of people that are addicted to meth or the thousands of people that are doing crime or whatever. Now we can narrow it down to an organization that is working with people that are coming out of prison and saying, hey, I want some help getting my life on track. And they sign that paper and say, yeah, I'd love for somebody to walk with me. And then it's crickets. Because there's nobody there. Church, we can't sit here comfortably in our lives whenever the brokenness is all around us and claim that we don't see any harvest. Those people are the poor in spirit that Jesus is talking about. Those are the people that know they've made a mess of their lives. It's not that Jesus doesn't love the rich people or the people that are doing well. It's just that oftentimes we're distracted and we don't realize our need for him. People that are, their lives are broken and they understand that they have a a need for a savior. They're more sensitive and they're, they're fertile soil for the gospel. That's why we're talking about things like Mentors for Kids, or the Homeward Bound Agency through Lutheran Services, where they plug you in with people that actually want help. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be one conversation. It's going to be life on life for a long time, but it's, it's walking with people, embracing their brokenness, and carrying that burden. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. The message of Luke has been that, that Jesus has taken his people to the people that nobody else wants. Right? You've got to have seen that over and over again. The leper, the poor, the prostitute, the people that the religious people have said, oh, keep, keep them away. We don't, want to catch what, we don't want to catch what they got. Jesus goes right to them. 
So who's in your life that, that would like actually come to church if you asked? Who, who do you know that like if you asked them to read a book of the Bible with you, they would actually do it? Who, or maybe you start here. Who would come to your house for dinner if you just offered? Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe, it's, maybe it is grabbing one of the, those papers or on our on mission board out there. Maybe it's grabbing one of them and getting connected with one of those organizations. That they would say, yeah, I would love somebody to be my family, to walk with me. Start there. Live there. Look for the ones that God is softening and giving you favor over and, and pour into there. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said, but the laborers are few. Pray that he sends us out. The next thing we see in verses 3 and 4 is that dependence is going to be required. Dependence upon God is required as we live on mission. He says in verse 3, Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Okay, there's cultural relevance to all of those things, but here's the big idea. Jesus is forcing them to trust him. Okay, it isn't enough for Jesus to just tell, tell them, say, hey, you're going to need to trust me for all of your needs. Because you can acknowledge that and say, okay, yeah, yeah, but it's against our human nature to like not pack provisions, to not think about, well, what's going to happen when I run out of this, or not what's going to happen when I don't have any more food, and so it's against our nature, and it won't. But so Jesus forces them out and says, don't take any, don't take any money back, don't take an extra pair of sandals, don't take any provisions that you yourself can rely on. You're going to go and trust me to provide for you. What's interesting is that. So some people will take that and run and, and claim a life of poverty and claim that Christians are called to a life of poverty. And they'll use verses like this. But what's interesting is you read the whole, read the whole Bible, and it's often way more insightful than just one passage. Just pro tip there. Okay, keep reading. Um, but one of the things you see in, in Luke 22 is that he's going to send them out later with plenty of supplies. Okay, so it's not always going to be that we don't have or that we're leaving with nothing, but Jesus wants them to learn this first before he blesses them with plenty. He wants, to learn, he wants them to learn to trust him in nothing so that they can handle the blessings he's going to give them later. He's going to send them out later with plenty, but he'll remind them in Luke 22, hey, remember when I sent you out with nothing? Did I not provide for you? And they're like, yeah, all right. Well, as you go, you got your money back, you got your sword, you're still going to need to trust me. Because things are still going to get messy. Stuff's still going to happen, and you're going to have to, you're going to, have to trust God in the midst of, okay, now what happened? I got a diagnosis that I didn't expect. And I've got money, and that's great, but now I can't control this. Or I've got a rejection relationally that I didn't expect, or I've got this or that. And we're going to need to trust God in those moments. So he wants to teach us to trust him in the fundamental moments. You think about this as a theme throughout Scripture, right? Think back to the Exodus. Think back to earlier in, in Luke 9 when, when Jesus is in the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah come, and what are they talking about? They're talking about the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish, right? So they're looking back to the exodus that Moses accomplishes in the Old Testament, and they're saying Jesus is doing an even greater exodus as he goes to Jerusalem. He's going to set people not free from a tyrant leader, but from sin and death and Satan, and he's going to lead even greater people of God out of that slavery. But one of the things we see in the Exodus, as God is forming for himself a people of God, he tells them, hey, you're going to need to trust me. I'll deliver you out of the hands of Pharaoh. Trust me. But he can't just say that. So he's going to give them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to actually live that out. Right? It comes, first of all, they have to trust him in the midst of the plagues. They have to trust him in the, the, the plague of the 
Death of the firstborn, right? That God is really not going to, really, God will really protect their family if they obey this. But then later they get out of Egypt and immediately he, he gives them another opportunity where they have no options and they are forced to trust God. Right? As they get to the Red Sea, they can't cross it. They don't have any boats. They can't all swim. There's too many of them. They have children. And, it, and the Egyptians are barreling down on them. God says, okay, listen, I know you can't handle it. Now you've got to watch and let me provide for you. And he parts the Red Sea, something no one, no one, no man could ever do, and he makes a way for them. And he's creating this rhythm in them. Later they're going to come and they go, okay, wait, we, we don't have enough food. We have nothing to eat and we're in the desert. Why would you bring us out there to kill us? And God goes, no, 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 this is an opportunity for you to trust me. It makes food fall from the sky. Water come out of rocks. Like He does amazing things just to teach his people to depend on him. That part of the story hasn't changed. Okay? We may live in a world of plenty. We may, we, like, we live, like, we're the richest people to ever live in history, the American people. Like, we have so much, and even our poor are rich in the world's standards. And so we live in this culture, and that's our story. But Jesus still requires us to rely on him, to depend on him. Because there'll come a day when we don't have the provisions that we think we do. And what's going to happen then? We're, there's going to come a day when there's something comes in our life that we can't control. And we're going to need to know how to depend on him. So dependence is required. And really, it's the, the key to true joy. Depending upon God for your every need is the key to actually having contentment and fulfillment. Paul says this in Philippians 4. He writes it from jail. From a guy who's been shipwrecked, left for dead beaten to death, and now locked up in prison. And he said, it is my treasure in Christ. It's the gospel. Knowing that, that what I have in Christ far exceeds anything else I could ever have on this world. That's what is the secret. Paul says, that's the, the secret to living with plenty or to living with nothing. Total dependence upon God is necessary for life, but certainly for life on mission. And then lastly, what we see is that Jesus commands us to rejoice in the gospel. So we're going to rejoice with Jesus in the gospel. I want you to look at verse 17. So he sends the 72 out, and they come back. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. They were saying, Lord, hey, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're pumped. Like they've seen God work in mighty ways. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So Jesus says, yeah, I know. Like, I've seen the enemy fall. I was there when the great battle went down. I know his mission. I know that, that this is all turning loose the powers of the kingdom of heaven. The church is, is gaining influence, gaining power. The enemy is going to be taken down. And Jesus says, I know all that, and I know it's really exciting when the demons listen to you. Right? One pastor kind of said, like, a lot of us, we live our life and ain't nobody listen to us. Right? Some of you parents, you're not excited about summer because you're like, my kids don't listen to me. Like, I know. But like, when we claim the name of Jesus, there's power in that. And the demons will listen to us. Like, they have to obey because the power is in Jesus' name, not our own. So what we see is that he commands them. He goes on in verse 20. He says, listen, I know that's all good, but don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that the names are written, that your names are written in heaven. And then he goes on to, to verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. I want you to picture Jesus rejoicing. Do you have that? Do you have a category for that in your images of Jesus? Jesus is rejoicing. 
I think we, we, a lot of times we just think Jesus is motionless and straight-faced. Like he's rejoicing in this truth because he's seeing his people. It's all coming together. All that they've been doing for eternity, it, it's all culminating in the people understanding this beauty. And he's saying, listen, God, and he's rejoicing in the, the will of the Father that God chose to display all this through grace, not through anybody's achievement. He's saying, Lord, thank you that you, that you have chose to um, reveal these things to little children. Verse 21. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turns to his disciples, and he gathers them in, and he says this. He says privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. So Jesus, once again, pointing his disciples back and saying, Hey, listen, you know all that you've been taught from your your birth about the Old Testament. It was about me. The message that the prophets were proclaiming that one day the Messiah would come, he's here. The kings that came and were supposed to deliver you and, and provide a flourishing life for you, they all were just a shadow of the one who was going to come and provide an eternal kingdom that would never vacate his throne. Jesus says, I'm here. Elijah, Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, King David, Abraham, all of them longed for this day. The Bible describes heaven as leaning in, angels longing to look into the glory of the gospel. Jesus says, They all long for it. They didn't get to see it. You're seeing it. You don't need to miss this. So don't get excited, Jesus says, about the ministry that happened and the fact that demons are obeying you. That's actually not that big a deal. Jesus says, what you should rejoice in is the fact that your name is written in heaven. We've got to let that set with us because a lot of us, we, we get into ministry or we start serving, we, we get a role, we get a, we get a job, we get, a, we get some gifts, and we start thinking, okay, I, I, have, something contrib- I have something to contribute to this deal, right? Maybe I I'm, maybe I'm actually am great. We think back to the disciples just a chapter before where they start having an argument about who's the greatest, right? We all have that tendency and we forget about the glory of the gospel and we start thinking, oh yeah, like I'm getting this recognition here at church and I'll go to church because I want to do this. I want to look like the best servant. I want to look like the smartest teacher. I want to look like the most devoted Christian and I want to make sure my social media presents that, whatever it may be. Like we have that tendency to self-exalt and Jesus says, no, 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 don't rejoice in any of those things. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. Listen, this is why so many pastors fail. It happens, plays itself out in different avenues, but the root of it is people that do what I do, if if it goes well, we can start thinking that we had something to do with it. We start rejoicing in our gifts or our successes, and we drift away from Jesus. We stop having joy in the fact that our name is written in heaven, we start having joy in the number of people that fill our seats or in the number of people that repost our social media or whatever it may be. So you need to pray for your pastor. Pray for other pastors. That yes, God grows our church and God uses us, but that my heart never gets over Jesus' love for me personally. And that that is the fuel that, that sends me on mission, but it's also the hope that I latch my joy onto. And even if this church fails, or even if something, like, none of that matters because my joy rests in Jesus. And that he has made a way for my name to be written in heaven.
you need to guard against pride in your own life. You need to think about what would, what would devastate you if it got taken away from you. If someone didn't think you were this kind of person or they didn't think that you, or if you couldn't do that job or if you didn't have this image or your body didn't look this way, like would you be, dev- like you need, to, you need to unearth that idol and say, okay, Lord, like I want to rejoice in my salvation and nothing more. Paul says, I boast in the cross, I boast in Christ alone. Paul had plenty to boast in, plenty in a lot of churches, had a lot of, he healed a lot of people, but he says, I boast in Christ alone. So we rejoice in the Holy Spirit. We, we rejoice with Jesus in the gospel. That's why we do communion every week. Communion is a sacrament. And, and, and Augustine describes sacraments as kind of a, a window through which we get to see, like a physical display, a window through which we get to see a great, beautiful, eternal truth. So it's a physical symbol that represents something eternally amazing. So we do communion every week because we don't want to ever get over the gospel. We don't want to ever be unmoved by the gospel. And some people would say, well, actually doing communion so often is actually kind of loses its impact. I mean, I'm saying like, listen, you need to think about communion then. You understand the weight of what this is saying, that, that Jesus himself the one who was there in the beginning, the one who created us, the one in which the whole universe holds together. He stepped off his throne and he entered into our mess. God sent him and he made a way by giving of his own life, crawling onto the altar as the Lamb of God and allowing his body to be the sacrifice which would make Jesus says, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. One of my favorite songs is Before the Throne of God God Above, and it says, my name is graven on his hands. That that same Jesus, the glorious, sinless one, allowed nails to be pierced through his hand so that he could bring salvation to you and I. And we need to never, ever get over that. So this meal, we, we take it every week because the bread represents the body of Jesus broken. And the cup represents his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sin. And so if it's, if it's lost its weight for you and you, you're not rejoicing in that truth that Jesus has made a way for, for you to be with him, for you to have shalom, for you to have joy, to be in the presence of God, if, if, if that's not moving you, if you've gotten over that, then you need to be on your knees this morning, praying that God restores to you the joy of your salvation, of his salvation that he's gifted to you. You need to be praying and pleading that God never lets you move beyond that, that you never get over the gospel, you never get over the cross, you never move beyond what Jesus has displayed for us in his love. Romans 5 says it's the ultimate display of love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's made a way, and then he sends us out to tell others that there's a way been met. Let's pray. God, we need you. We need you to reveal the selfishness of our hearts. We need you to reveal the nearsightedness of our, of our, of our minds, Lord, that we fail to think about the bigger picture, fail to think about the glory of the gospel, that we fail to think about the people who don't know the truth that Jesus loves them and what that can do for their life. We, we are selfish by nature, Lord, and we are nearsighted by nature. We need you to rescue us. 
So send your spirit, Lord, in this time of response. Speak strongly through this meal of communion, Lord. May we not take it for granted. May you stop us in our tracks and bring us to our knees at the truth and the reality of the gospel. Make us into a people, Lord, that are overwhelmed with joy and gratitude for what Jesus has done and who he is. And Lord, send us out. Make us laborers. Send us out into your harvest. Make yourself known in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.